1959, around 1950 or so, there's a revival that swept through those islands through the main speaker being a man by the name of Duncan Campbell between 1949 and 1952. He came to the Isle of Lewis for a two-week evangelistic campaign and stayed for over two years. But behind that outpouring, uh, there were people engaged in a very quiet, private ministry of prayer. In fact, there were two elderly sisters. Their names were Peggy and Christine Smith. They lived in a small cottage in the village of of Barbas. They were 84 and 82 years old. Peggy was blind. Her sister, Christine Smith, was bent double with arthritis. And quite frankly, they were shut-ins. And there in their cottage, they would meet, and their cottage became a sanctuary where where they would meet with God. They became gripped with a promise in Isaiah 44, verse 3, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. And day and night they would pray this together, Peggy and Christine, and plead this promise in prayer. And one night it just became apparent and clear to Peggy that revival was coming in the church she had grown up in, and the church of her fathers would be crowded again with young people. <clears throat> and she sent for the minister, James Murray McKay, and told, her, told him what God had shown her. And she asked him to call the elders and the deacons together for special times of waiting upon God. I'll share a little bit more about that story, but that's how the revival in the Hebride Islands uh, began. Two elderly ladies praying together. Praying the prayer in Isaiah 44.3, I will pour water on him that is thirsty and floods upon the dry ground. In our time, we are a parched generation. This is a dry time. This is a season of drought. There has not been a revival that has swept through our nation since... 1857. And we need to be aware this morning that there are two sides in a great war. There are only two sides. There is no middle. It's not the Baptists versus the Methodists versus the Presbyterians. It is the people of God and God himself and Satan and his warriors. There are only two sides in the great war. There is a war between Satan and Christ. And the enemy desires to cast out the glory of God. That it is one goal, that is what he is bent on. Casting out the glory of God. And the other side, God, the victorious side... They are not equal in power. God, the victorious one, desires to see His glory fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we have a story where the enemies of God have come to cast out the glory of God, to set up their idolatry. To assault God's people. And God's people are broken. 
and God's people seek His face, and God works, and He pours water out on dry ground. This morning, I'd like you to see in verses 1 and 2, the crisis, the crisis. We're introduced to a serious national crisis. Moab, Ammon, and probably some of the Bedouins in that area have put together a well-planned, a sudden, a massive strike against Judah, and they're only 50 miles away. They are near the Dead Sea in a place called En Gedi, camped in an oasis there, and they are 50 miles away from Jerusalem. Moab and Ammon were the enemies of God. They began, as you might remember, uh, through Lot's incest, became the enemies of God, and they have thought, they have planned, they have now come suddenly to bring a massive strike against Judah. They move quickly, and they're only 50 miles away. Now put yourself in Judah's shoes. You don't have time to rally your troops. You don't have the forces, even if you did, to stand against these enemies. So there's a crisis. There's a crisis. And I want to say that today in Christ Church, as you look at the state of Christ Church today, there is a crisis. There is a drought. The church in many ways is sitting on its couch eating potato chips, even literally, while its friends and families go to a Christless eternity. The church is trying to change the truth of Scripture to fit in with the enemy. The church is plagued with marriages that exist in name only and are stale, not vibrant, and failing and falling apart and decaying. Kids who move out and then the empty nesters are all alone and they know what to do with themselves and they divorce. Secret affairs. The church has homes where God is not set apart, His Word is not treasured. For the families and children are not led by spiritual leaders and godly fathers and mothers. Disrespect is rampant. The holiness of God is not honored. Media disciples the children rather than the word of God. The presence of God is not sought. The grace of God is abused. The wisdom of God is not heeded. The forgiveness of God is trampled on. The name of God is not set apart. The Spirit of God is not depended on. The values in the heart of God are ignored. The things that God has created are worshipped. And the purpose of God is hushed. Yes, the enemy of God has been given a foothold, a place of residence. As Paul says it, a, a giving of ground, a listening ear, an acknowledging not, even a secret embrace, and he has come to cast out the glory of God. In 
Yes. In many ways, the church has let the enemy march on. Fornication in various forms is tolerated. Shame is removed. Slander and gossip are acceptable. Division is normal and chuckled at by the world and our churches. Materialism reigns. Greed has very little competition. There is a clear enemy who is tirelessly working who understands eternity even better than we do, and who is investing all his power and all his resources to cast out the glory of God. Time is short, and the enemy of God is on the move. And the church in many ways is asleep in the light. The church in many ways is, is, is yawning at the word of God. It's prayerless. And is powerless like a puppy in a lion cage. And I don't know if you feel it. Do you notice it? Do you agree there is a crisis? The enemy has marched and he has even infiltrated to cast out the radiance and beauty of the king. In verses 3 to 4, there is a call. There is a call. It says, And Jehoshaphat feared. The crisis put him on his knees. He feared, and he set himself to seek the Lord, and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah, listen, gathered themselves together. They gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. There is a call to corporate prayer in verses 3 to 4. There is a call to seek the Lord together. They come out of their cities. They gather themselves together to ask help of the Lord. To ask of the Lord, literally, in the original language. That puppy that was in the corner of the lion's den could do one thing and one thing alone. It could seek God. Verse 3, notice it says, started with one man. He set himself to do what? To seek Yahweh. And he proclaims a fast through all the land. Verse 4, they gather themselves. You see the corporateness of this. They gather themselves together to ask out all the cities. They come to seek God because of what one man began. They followed. Jehoshaphat's first resort when he saw the crisis and feared was to call upon the church to pray. And I wonder if that's our first resort, to call upon the church to pray when our eyes are open to see the enemy coming. There's a call to corporate prayer, seeking God's face. Thirdly, there's a cry. There's a cry. There's a communication Yahweh, a cry, verses 5 through 13. Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court, and he prays in a representative of, of, of his people to God. 
as king and says in verse 6, O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven, and rulest not thou over all the kings of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that none is able to withstand thee? First of all, he stands in the congregation as a gathering corporate prayer, and he declares God's sovereignty. You find the early church does this in Acts 4 when they're persecuted. They remind themselves, they think God's thoughts after, after him, that, that, that God is still in charge. That God is not dethroned. That God is all-powerful. And the absolute pristine ruler over all. And there is not one square inch over which he is not Lord. They declare his sovereignty. Are you not our God in heaven? And you rule over all the kingdoms of the heathen. And then, verses 7 through 11, in the cry, they declare his promises. This is what you said you will do. Will you do it? This is what you said you would do. Will you not do it? Art thou not our God? Who didst drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel? Who gave it to the seed of Abraham thy friend forever? This is yours, Lord. You put us here. You did this. They are coming upon your land. And they dwelt therein and have built the sanctuary then for thy name, saying, If when evil cometh upon us, he reminds God of what Solomon prayed when the temple was built. As a sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we stand before this house and in thy presence, for thy name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. And now, here's the issue. They're coming to invade, Lord. They're coming to invade. And Lord, is what you're going to do just allow them to cast us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit? Verse 12. O our God, will thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that cometh against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. They declare his promises, what he said he would do. Then verses 12 and 13, they declare their helpless dependence. We have no might, we have no wisdom, we have no power. The only thing we can do is to get on our faces and ask and trust and wait. In verse 13, and all Judah stood before the Lord in the presence of God. With their little ones, their wives, and their children. They declared their focus. Men, what if our wives and our children and our grandchildren saw us as helpless and desperate before God? Saw us admitting we are helpless and desperate. For God to move. What if our toddlers saw us stand and admit that we are desperate for God to move us, that we need Him? Judah came to that realization. Fourthly, the confidence expressed. 
there's a man who can trace his heritage all the way back to Asaph, you know, the writer of the Psalms. The one who led the great uh, worship in the temple, Asaph, who, uh, uh, back in David's day. His name is Jehaziel. And the Spirit of God comes upon him. In the middle of all this gathering together, Jehaziel. And there is a confidence expressed. Uh, Jehaziel delivers a message, uh, pro- prophesies what God, a message that God gives him. He proclaims God's word and he said, Hearken ye, all Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, and thou King Jehoshaphat, thus saith the Lord unto you, Be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go ye down against them. Behold, they come up by the cliff of Ziz, and ye shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. Ye shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand ye still, and see the salvation of the Lord. With you, O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. You see the confidence expressed. When we are desperate and we call upon God together, God sends the Spirit to work. Is there anything that the Spirit of God is more passionate about than the glory of God honored? And what transpires happens when their eyes were illumined to the reality of the crisis. It happened when their eyes were illumined to the underlying attack on the glory of God. It happened when they realized they were desperate and zealous for God's glory. And you can see the story kind of, kind of change from worrying about their own self-preservation to seeing God's name exalted. Before it was, they're coming, they're going to slaughter us, and now it's, we want to see you exalted. Look what happens here. Illustrate this in verse 18. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. Before it was, God, will you do this, and will you preserve us? Which was not a wrong request to ask. But now their hearts are turned in worship to God in the face of crisis. Worship. And the Levites, verse 19, and the children of the Kohathites and of the children of the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a loud voice on high. Music erupts. Verses 18 through 21. They stand on the word of God, the promises of God, the sovereign God, and they worship. They have submitted their hearts to Him. They have humbled themselves to Him. They are hungry for God. They are thirsty for His work. They are zealous for His glory to be magnified. And they are fueled by the beauty of His holiness. Doesn't, I mean, beauty of His holiness, here they are. Here's the, here it would seem the real problem would be that people and enemies of God are going to come in and slaughter them and their children. And they are consumed for the beauty of God's holiness. Look at verse 
20. They arose early in the morning and went forth in the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah, and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem, believe in the Lord your God. So shall ye be established. Believe his prophets, referring to what Jehaziel had said, the word of God declared. So shall ye prosper. And when he had consulted with the people, he appointed singers unto the Lord, and that should praise the beauty of holiness. And they went out before the army, and to say, Praise the Lord for his mercy endureth forever. Now that's strange. But do you see how it went from us in danger now to a fire for his holiness and joy in his great mercy? When they understood the beauty of his holiness, then they realized, God, you would be just to just let this happen. But it's by your mercy, the promises you gave to the forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob, and a seed that would destroy the, the serpent given to, given to Eve, uh, 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 and, and, and a descendant of Abraham would bless all the nations. God, you're merciful. This is a promise that's going to happen. Your mercy endures forever. We praise your holiness. What about us? Do I, do we, do you, do we really care? Do we really care, if we're honest, about if we reflect the glory of God and His excellence? Do we really walk in awe of His mercy to us that we're not consumed? Do you? Do you have times where you have increasing moments of worship with Him? And the, for, because of the beauty of His holiness, and then that He has placed you in the Beloved because of His mercy. Are there increasing moments of worship with Him? Does your fight against sin and fight against the darkness, is it fueled out of worship? Is it fueled out of a, a passion for Him and His holiness, the beauty of His holiness, the Scriptures say? Then in verses 22 through 25, you have the counter. You have the counterattack here. The enemy is coming. The darkness is, is increasing. And God is going to step in. It says, And when they began to sing in the praise, the Lord said, ambushments, he said ambushes, against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, which were coming against Judah, and they were smitten. Now, we don't know if he used another tribe or nation to ambush these people. Um, uh, we don't know if he did it supernaturally with an angelic realm. Uh, all we know is that he thwarted the attack, he countered the assault. Verse 23 says, For the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir utterly to slay and destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone helped to destroy one another. There was confusion among the, among the, the, the people and the tribes, and they started killing each other. And Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness and looked out of the multitude that had come, the darkness that was advancing in front of them. And all I could see was people on the ground, dead bodies. Fallen to the earth, and none escaped. And through the means of their earnestly seeking God together, he pushes the darkness back. The rain falls. 
the fire of God falls. And verse 25 says, And when Jehoshaphat and his people came to take away the spoil of them, they found among them in abundance both riches with the dead bodies and precious jewels, which they stripped off for themselves, more than they could carry away. And they were three days in gathering of the spoil. It was so much. The blessing of God breaks upon them as they sought God. The fountains break open. And there is more than they can even handle. When God's people had gathered together and had genuinely sought Him to work, He did abundantly above anything they asked or thought. I mean, God could have just turned them away. God wipes out their enemies. And folks, God delighted to do that. We always underestimate what God will do when we surrender to Him. I wonder this morning, what is holding you back from brokenness and surrender? What fears are holding you back from casting away your pride? What might you be clinging to? And I wonder if there's something that's holding you back. And seeking God wholeheartedly. And maybe you need to come to realize the crisis. Maybe you need to come to realize the glory of God is at stake. And you are dust. You see, His blessing far out exceeds and outweighs anything we're holding in our tight fists. What lies have you believed that convinced you that you need to hold to pride and not surrender? That you can take care of this yourself? How are you better off that way than being under the joy and blessing of God? God worked when the people humbled themselves and they gathered together and saw His face. And then notice finally the change. There's a countenance that is transformed. It's been coming all along. And they worshipped in glory before the battle you saw in the previous section. But in verses 26-30 through 30 it says, On the fourth day, so they spent three days gathering all the spoils off of the, off of the enemies that God had wiped out. So day four. Day four. They assembled themselves. Again, there's the gathering together. In the valley of Barakah. Baraka means the blessing of God. For there they blessed the Lord. Therefore the name of the same place was called the Valley of Baraka unto this day. Then they returned, every man of Judah and Jerusalem, and Jehoshaphat in the forefront of them, to go again to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. And they came to Jerusalem with psalteries and harps and trumpets under the house of the Lord. And they weren't just carrying them. Those things were going off, I guarantee you. And the fear of God was on all the kingdoms of those countries when they had heard that the Lord fought against the enemies of Israel. So the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet, for his God gave him rest round about. There had been a change. The enemy had come to cast out the glory of God, and the enemy, darkness, had been cast out. Verse 27. 
And news spread, verse 29, even to the pagan nations around them. And God's eternal purpose, the glory of God to fill the earth as the waters fill the sea, happened there in Judah. <clears throat> and there are some parallels we can take from the story of the nation of Israel with the with the church today, the church in Ephesians 3 has the, cho- the chosen instrument to display the glory of God to the watching universe. These people, these Israelites could rest in Him. God fights in front. Listen, there is a lamb, Revelation says, who holds the keys to death and hell. Who will come leading His hosts. To wrap all of this up. There is a reality of unseen warfare right now. The seed of Satan is warring against the seed of the woman. He has been defeated at the cross. He is doing all he can against God and his people and God's glory till he is cast away forever. And I believe, as Judah of old, must cry out for an awakening and plead for God to work for us and in us, and through us. We have been placed in Christ as victorious believers with our King out front and we must obey and go forward in the strong name of Jesus. We must reclaim our families for Christ. We must reckon our flesh to be crucified with Christ. We must put on Christ and we must embrace His reign in us. Notice that verse 30 says the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest round about. And folks, spiritual warfare is going on. But we can rest in the finished work of Christ. We can act because of Christ's victory. We can see the crisis. We can cry out to God. We can love the beauty of His glory. We can put on the armor. We can get the Word of God in us. We can know the Gospel. We can live in line with the Gospel. And we can seek His face together. And awaken the light. I wonder if even this week, you would begin asking the Lord, To awaken your heart in Him. Oh, I understand if we're believers, we've been regenerated. We've been given a new heart. We've been made alive. We've been given eyes to see. But Paul himself, after his great treatise in the Gospel in Romans 13, after he has displayed the glories of the Gospel, he still says in Romans 13, Wake up. Awake. For now, our time is nearer than when we first believed. We saw it in Ephesians 5 as well. Wake up. Walk in the light. Walk in the light. Church, shake off the grogginess. Rub the sleep out of our eyes. Paul's prayer to the Ephesians is that they would be illumined. That they would see the glory of God displayed in His love that passes all knowledge and understanding. The height, the breadth, the depth, the length thereof.
And I know an awakening only comes not simply because the word of God is being preached, but because there is power behind it through the prayers of his people who are desperate. And there is a turning of the heart to not just hear another sermon or not to read another chapter in my Bible, but to see it put to use. To see the power of God and the glory of God fuel my day to day. Whether I'm washing dishes or whether I'm witnessing to an atheist.